You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. Did you notice the poor man has a name? Did you notice? And his name is Lazarus. Lazarus. I wonder if Jesus had a particular person in mind when he told this parable. Do you, you ever think about that? Yeah. I wonder if he, he witnessed something, a, a real thing, an actual person called Lazarus. It was the third most common name in, at the time in Israel. It's a form of Eleazar. And uh, so it's kind of, in one sense, he's kind of saying, it was like saying John or whatever. It's kind of an everyman name. But on the other hand, it's just something nags me as I, always as I've read that, whether Jesus is recounting not just a fable, an illustrative parable, but something that really happened. Um, the rich man has not got a name. Did you notice that? Isn't, and is Jesus thinking of someone in particular there? It's hard to imagine, isn't it, that someone could really exist. He's, a, he's an exaggeration, surely, isn't he? He's dressed in purple and fine linen every day. So, Purple was literally worth its weight in gold. It was, a dye, it was a dye used in Roman times. Literally worth its weight in gold. So you'd have to be a millionaire more to have a, a, a purple robe that you wore every now and then for parties, let alone a purple robe that you wore every day. You'd have to be incredibly wealthy. Um, he feasted every day. It seems to me like an exaggeration. He feasted happily, merrily every day. Well, the interesting thing is, there was someone in Israel who dressed like that and did that. And he was the high priest. If you have a, take a quick look, Exodus 39, 29, if you want to check it out. The high priest's sash is purple and fine linen. And he wasn't a great guy at the time. He wasn't a particularly nice guy. And he would have, the word used in Greek that Jesus uses for feasted every day, we've, we've lost the nuance in English, but it is the same. Feasted, festivaled. Had a holiday, a holy day, every day. It's the same kind of nuance in Greek. It's someone who celebrates a religious festival every day. And what is it in, uh, in the NIV? It says, the rich man lived in luxury. And uh, it's, it's kind of capturing a nuance there. That he, he feasted, he had these parties by candlelight. And again, there's kind of religious overtimes. Not only that, but the high priest at the time had five brothers. <laughs> so that for me, when I, when I heard that, I was like, oh, that's interesting. He had five brothers. And I don't think Jesus is actually talking about the high priest. I think if he really wanted to make the point, he would have made it. But my point is that as people listen to this, they would have been a little bit gobsmacked at what they were hearing. This is a, a brave, powerful, direct uh, kind of um, indictment of the religious institutions at the time. There was huge inequality and injustice to the poor. And we see that. Um, Jesus finishes his parable saying, you know, if, they, if they're not convinced by Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced even if someone rises from the dead, which, of course, is prophetically. He's speaking to the religious establishment. And in the issue of injustice to the poor, which is, of course, what this parable is highlighting, they hadn't listened. There was, there was huge um, injustice, there was, um, especially to do with exploiting the poor over the le- uh, lending of money. And about 35 years or so after this parable was told, 
there's a group of rebels emerged in Judea in the region called the Sicarii. And one of the first things they did was they burnt down a, um, a records house in the temple precinct that contained all the debt records um, so that all the record of what people owed to the rich would be destroyed and there was no way of recalling people's debts. It was kind of an economic revolution or an attempt at one. So, he, yeah, he, so we're talking about the high priest. He had a porch. You know, he had these five brothers. So this is a very subversive thing for Jesus to say. So money was a big issue and justice was a big issue. And Jesus is talking about money to us again. And it comes with a variety of warnings. So my first point today is, if you didn't listen to last week's sermon, go listen to it again. <laughs> it's up on the, online and you can save me about half an hour talking this morning. Um, if you haven't heard it or you weren't paying attention or you just fancy hearing what God had to say again. Is that okay? That's me ducking out. Okay. Thanks. Good point. Well made. Thanks. <laughs> um, so we've had, we had a, the Lord spoke to us about finances and um, being shrewd and that's not for the first time this, this year either. I think I think the first thing that God will speak to us about through this parable is quite a sharp warning, actually. And, and it's quite a surprising warning, I think. Um, but it is there throughout Scripture. I think God would warn us that it is actually possible to reject God's salvation, to, spur, you know, to say no to God completely and utterly in this life without ever having specifically said, no, thank you, Jesus, I don't want you. We have this idea that, you know, maybe religion or life is somehow uh, something we do and then God rewards us at the end. So, like, we sign a contract. Maybe it's like I put my hand up in a gospel service and I went forward or I, you know, I got baptised and that's my bit. And as a reward for that, God will, you know, give me the reward of heaven or eternal life or something. Or maybe, you know, slightly less gospel version of that is if I live a certain way, you know, God will look at that and uh, he'll reward me. The payback I will get will be that God gives me eternal life, or I have a place in heaven when I die, or you know I don't have to worry about when I die, or, or whatever it is. You know we have this kind of contractual understanding. So there's this kind of punishment or reward. If I believe such and such, I'll go to heaven. Um, but the offer of salvation, the, the jeopardy that this rich man faced, was ne- is never never explicitly stated, is it? What did he do? What did what did he refuse? Any specific offer? Did an evangelist come to his door and say, have you ever heard the good news of Jesus Christ? No. Well, it wasn't that. He, he, it was an immoral action of ignoring this poor man who lived on his step again and again and again, repeatedly, until he was, hard, was so hard, even if someone had turned up and given him the best gospel presentation, if he'd, if he'd seen the crucifixion itself, even if he'd seen someone rise from the dead, he would be unable to respond to the gospel. <coughs> Time and again, he chose hell. And finally he got what he wanted. He chose hell because every time he refused to look at Lazarus, he said, I don't want heaven. I don't want a world where God loves everybody. 
I don't want a world where God is generous to those that I don't like. I want a world that revolves around me and my desires and keeps me comfortable and safe and secure. I want a world that revolves around me and my wants and needs. And that is the difference between ultimately between heaven and hell. It's the, it's the difference. Surely we might say, if, he, if he'd have known the consequences, if he'd have known what would have happened to him when he died, would he have chosen differently? And, and this parable is addressing that, that, that specific point. That's what the, the ending is all about. If he had known the consequences, he would not have chosen differently. Let that sink in for a minute. That is what the, that is what the news of the gospel is all about in some ways. You know, it's, it's not just that people haven't heard. It's not just that people don't, aren't aware of who Jesus is or they haven't heard the gospel. They've never made sense of it. It is that the, this whole life is interwoven with, uh, are we going to accept or reject God's grace? And again and again, day after day, we're faced with choices where we can choose to walk towards God's love or walk away from it. And if we repeatedly refuse to walk towards it and we walk away from it, then we are effectively choosing again and again to walk away from heaven and into hell. And you see this house set in stone, this man's choices are, by his attitude after he dies. And this is what I mean about if he'd known he wouldn't repent, because he's in hell, he's suffering these tortures, and we might talk about hell in a minute, just in case you're wondering about that. He's suffering these pains, and he sees Abraham across this vast chasm, whatever that is. We don't need to make sense of it, okay? But he's somehow aware of what's happening in heaven. And he sees Abraham, and he sees Lazarus. And what does he ask Abraham to do? Who does he, who does he ask Abraham to send to serve him? Who? Lazarus. What the selfish get? <laughs> but that's it. I mean, it's, you know, that is Jesus. I don't know whether he's meant to elicit a laugh or shock. I'm not really sure. But that is the point that Jesus is making, isn't it? He's in hell burning, and Lazarus is Abraham's friend, favoured. He's, you know, he's in this place of comfort, being treated in luxury. And who does he want to be his servant, his slave? The Lazarus. He still doesn't get it. Astonishing. Abraham says no. Oh, well, maybe he could go and warn my brothers. Who does he ask Abraham to send? Lazarus. No, Lazarus has done his work. He's having a rest now. <laughs> he still doesn't get it. And there's something, there's something profound going on here. This chasm. Notice Jesus' words are very, very careful. Um, or the, Abraham's words are very careful in the mouth of Jesus. Between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. So, listen carefully, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot. You think heaven is full of people who want to rescue people in hell? Yes. Well, in a sense, they want them not to be there, right? But Abraham says, there's a rule. We don't let people do that. And what about the other way? Nor can anyone cross over here from, here from there to us. There's no rule, though, is there? There's no... Uh, a great chasm is fixed. Those who want to go from here to you cannot. What about those who want to go from hell to heaven? It doesn't say anyone wants to go from hell to heaven, does it? It doesn't say anyone wants to go from hell to heaven. And that's the thing. He doesn't want to. To love Lazarus is to choose heaven. <laughs> to ignore Lazarus is to choose hell. Not just once. He didn't just ignore him once. 
He didn't stumble morally. He chose a whole life that despised the poor. And so he rejected Christ. That's a shocking thing, isn't it? There's a, an old Russian, there's a Russian parable about a woman, a wicked woman who died. And she'd, um, when she died, she went to hell. But her guardian angel, this is a kind of Russian Orthodox parable, her guardian angel went to plead with God for, um, basically for her soul. And God said, well, okay then, if she, you tell me, if she's done one good thing in her whole life, then I'll let her out of hell. Or I'll give her a chance. And the guardian angel says, once, when she was gardening, she saw a very, very poor person starving just over the garden. And the poor person asked her for some food. And she gave that poor person a spring onion. It's like, you can laugh at spring onion, it's all right. <laughs> so the angel says, give me one chance. Let me pull her out of hell by a spring onion. I know that's a small chance. But let me pull her out of hell by a spring onion. So God says, yes, okay then. So the angel reaches down with the spring onion into the pit of hell, you know, and there's all this, like, described here. And he holds it out to her, and she reaches up, and she grabs it, and miraculously, the spring onion is strong enough and begins to pull her out. And as she's pulled out and her feet are dangling, other people in hell begin to grab her ankles. Remarkably, the spring onion is still strong enough and holds, and the angel pulls and pulls and pulls. But the woman looks down, and she sees all the people holding onto her ankles, and she begins to kick and kick and kick and she wriggles and wriggles and the spring onion snaps and she falls back into the abyss it's quite a Russian story isn't it (laughs) (laughs) but C.S. Lewis said the door to hell is locked from the inside and I think that's true I think that's what this parable is telling us the door to hell is locked from the inside um, so back to the point then this life is what God <laughs> gives us to decide our fate and he gives us that explicit chance to respond to the gospel you hear, you know, you hear the good news about Jesus Christ you hear that he died for your sins and you hear that that gift of salvation is free then you have that chance to respond but the deciding factor ultimately is whether you choose that love or not if you've received the grace of the gospel then you receive God's love and you get to see that love and so you're on that way. But Jesus says there will be some who call me Lord, Lord who I'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Why? Because they are, it says, Matthew 7, they're workers of lawlessness. They're those who said, I choose you Jesus, but by their lives they chose the same thing as this man. They lived in such a way as to reject Jesus because again and again they hardened their heart and they rejected people like Lazarus. Does that make sense? What's the message for us? What's the message for us? I think the message is a warning about the jeopardy we face in terms of our treatment of other people. There are certain things the Bible makes very, very plain that place us within the heat of the fires of hell, shall we say. One of those is explicit in this parable you know uh, cruelty tight-fistedness mockery for the poor he who mocks the poor <laughs> makes an enemy of god it's it's um but there are other things aren't there unforgiveness if you do not forgive neither will your father in heaven forgive you it's about people isn't it and how we see them um calling people fool 
Jesus says explicitly, doesn't he? And, you know, that doesn't mean the careless kind of like, oh, that was so stupid. But he says that's like, it's like murder. That complete dismissal of a person. Now, don't, don't hear my words. Hear the heart of what Jesus... Don't just hear my words. Hear the heart of what Jesus is saying. There is a, a cutting off in us of other people where it's not just dismissing them for the moment. It's kind of like, I don't need to have anything to do with you because you're worthless or stupid or beneath me or, or whatever. That if we choose again and again and again, puts us in the same position as this man. Um, the use of people. The use of people. Sexual promiscuity, pornography, abuse, yeah. Uh, ambition when it's manipulating other people for your own gain. These things are incredibly, you know, incredibly dangerous for our souls. Not just because they're one-off acts that God will judge, but because they work in us a pattern of refusal. That if we do it again and again, we become so hard-hearted that we become unable to respond to God's grace. So we would be like this rich man in heaven, saying, you know. <laughs> It's so blind to our sin that we continue to choose it even in the face of judgment. So this is a strong warning. It's there in the Bible. I'm saying it because Jesus said it. Maybe there's someone here this morning who needs to hear it. There are, there's a, a weaker version of that warning as well. There are patterns of behavior that lead to those extreme things. You know, when we choose again and again to use people in small ways. You know, I'm not going to list them, but I just I encourage you to just to think and pray and ask God to show you ways in your life where maybe instead of valuing people, you tend to use them either to make yourself feel good or to make, you know, make yourself feel better than others. Or maybe little patterns of behavior where you tend to dismiss or deride other people. The Holy Spirit will speak to you about that and say, that's not the path God wants you to go down. Um, I think there's also a call here from God in this passage on a different tack uh, to attend to our spiritual health. Attend to our spiritual health. So there's a warning how easy it is in this life to be distracted from what is most important. How easy it is to be distracted by comfort and ease from what is most important. You know, um, a friend of mine who's uh, into investment and that sort of thing has a book on his shelf. Uh, it basically explains this. I don't know the name of the principle, and I couldn't find it anywhere, but you have to, you have to take my word for it. Um, but maybe I'll look it up and let you know another time. But there's this principle in investing. If you can invent something that makes an everyday task just 10% easier or more efficient in terms of people's, you know, how much brain power it takes up, then that thing that you invented will be a success, and you will make millions of pounds. So investors look for these inventions that change the world. And from the outside, these inventions look very small. They look kind of insignificant. But actually, if you're an investor, you look for those things, you go, that's, that's a, a winning idea. So there's this principle you look for. Uh, so our, and it's really interesting, because that fact, that little investment tip for you stock market players out there, <laughs> that little investment tip is founded on a piece of uh, neurobiology, which basically we are hardwired to prefer comfort and ease. So take uh, an example, like I've got a credit card and a few years ago it was amazing, I didn't have to sign anymore, 
You know, when you pay, you remember the bad old days when you just sign a little piece of paper, look for a pen? How hard was that? Gosh, I think we could type in a four-digit pin number. That was incredible. That's a winning invention. But then somebody comes along and says, imagine if you can just tap. You know, you don't even have to take your card out of your wallet if you don't want to. You just tap. And that, you know, I mean, how hard is it to type in a pin? It's not hard at all, but it's a little bit easier <laughs> to tap a card onto a, a payment thing. Are you wondering where I'm going with this? I don't know. Yeah. I've told you where I'm going. Our brains are hardwired for ease. <laughs> They're hardwired for ease and comfort. We can see in this parable, in this parable of two men, a picture of our, of our own lives. And I appreciate this is an unusual interpretation of this parable, but this is what the Lord laid on my heart. These two men, in a sense, represent two halves of our own, of one life. They represent the material and the spiritual. And it's a picture of how easy it is to attend to the material and neglect the spiritual aspect of our life. Because we're hardwired for ease, we're hardwired for leisure and comfort, it's very easy just to, basically, just to get into a habit where you, if you had the choice, you would feast every day and you'd be very happy and you wear nice clothes and you would think from the outside and everybody looking at you, you, you're getting on fine. And this, what this parable, I think, points to is the fact that even when those things are in place, we know that something is wrong when we neglect the spiritual side of our life. Does that make sense? The rich man... Knew, didn't he? Because he had to pass Lazarus day after day after day. He was on his porch. He had to step over him. He knew. He was culpable for that. He was reminded again and again. And think of the picture. Lazarus, he's so weak, he's lying down all the time. He's covered in sores. Again, we see Jesus' efficiency in telling telling stories, don't we? Just a few words. The man was covered in sores, and even the dogs came and licked the sores. It's quite a picture. So there it is, right in his face. And again and again, day after day, God is speaking to him and saying, you need to repent, you need to change. Having fine linen and purple clothes and feasting every day and having loads of friends and that sort of thing, isn't, isn't, there's something deeply wrong in your life. And that's basically, I just think, what God would say to, to us this morning. He would speak to us and say, you... That, in one sense, you're attending to a certain part of your life and everything looks okay, but the, how is the spiritual part of your life? You have what the world thinks will make you happy, but day after day you step over, if you like, that thing that's inside you that says, I'm not happy. I'm not happy. And it's really, really obvious. You know, Jesus was really harsh with the Pharisees. He was like, with, you know, he included them in his parables like this one. And his criticism of them was their hypocrisy. Their hypocrisy. It's that though they looked good, they themselves knew what was inside their hearts. That's why he talks about, you know, it's what comes out of the heart. He calls them whitewashed tombs, which is a great picture, isn't it? He talks about out of, out of the heart come unrighteousness and that sort of thing. Because they knew that they were filled with disgust for other people, and hatred, and disgust. They knew all those things were there, and yet they were pretending to have this perfect veneer of, you know, of, of following God and so on. And so they were culpable for that. They were, they were being hypocritical, and Jesus, in his harsh words then, he's saying, look at the disconnect. And, and that's just what God would say to us this morning. For some of us, there's a disconnect. Maybe it's a religious life, where we tick all the religious boxes, we go to church, and we 
pray and read our Bible or whatever, or other people think well of us, or we wear the right things to church. I don't know, that's not such a big issue these days, but, you know, whatever. And, and, and actually, we know that our spiritual life is dead and empty because we find these same things in our hearts, these sense of, well, whether it's just, it could just be unhappiness, a deep sense of restlessness and uh, decay. It could be feelings towards other people. Or it could be that, you know, we don't have a spiritual life per se, or it's not, that's not the thing, but we have material wealth, and we have popularity, and we have comfort and ease, but the spiritual side of our life is, is dead. And God would just say to us, like he's saying to wealthy people in this parable, and like he said to the Pharisees a hundred times, it's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And not in a harsh way. You know, here... The, the, the love and the gentleness behind the Lord's rebuke. Like he's saying, this is, this is a path of foolishness. It doesn't make any sense. It's, it's not working for you. You know from the evidence in your own heart, the plan you've made for yourself is, is, is not working. And, you know, the one definition of madness is doing the same, thing again, the same thing again and again, even though it doesn't work. Day after day, he says, you get up. You buy the same things and you watch the same stuff and you hang out with the same people. And yet you're still unhappy. <laughs> God would remind us, true happiness comes from love, not leisure. Simple message, isn't it? True happiness comes from love, not leisure. It comes from knowing you're loved by God. And when you know you're loved by God, guess what? You love him and you love other people. And that love, it's not just a feeling, but as you understand that love, you want to put it into action. And true happiness comes from that love flowing through us in the works of faith, or even faith working through love. It comes through living a life of service to others. It comes from seeking to bring beauty and goodness and truth into people's lives. It takes, it's not easy. It takes careful thought. It takes practice. It takes effort. It takes discerning right from wrong. Prayer. It takes strength and it takes courage. And it takes painstaking perseverance. It takes skill and and practice and years and years to figure out how to love people well. It's not a life of leisure to to be a Christian. But it is a life that brings us the deepest, deepest satisfaction. The deepest happiness. God would say to some people here today, it's not working. It's not working. You need to try something new. I wonder if someone could go and see who's ringing that doorbell. Yeah, it's just here by the thing. Thanks. It's probably a kid playing, but maybe it's someone who really, really wants to come to church. <laughs> maybe they need to hear this next bit of the sermon. That'd be good, wouldn't it? <laughs> You know, just uh, so there's a warning there for us as Christians. I think that's fairly obvious, isn't it? That we neglect that. We neglect, neglect the pursuit of love at our, our peril. And it's really, really obvious when it's happening. 
Paul talks about it in uh, Galatians 5. He talks about the fruit of the Spirit. We know when we're walking in God's will because we have peace, love, joy, patience, all these things just flowing out of us. And we know when we're not because we have envy and division and you know, anger and all those things. And it's, it's obvious. He wants to tell us it's obvious. And if, if that's you, he's just saying gently, lovingly, it's not working. You need to, need to pursue love and think about what that means. Maybe... Just a poor person. Oh. Thanks, <laughs> 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 oh, Poor person. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's a message for us. But maybe... Uh, for someone who's not a Christian and not made that commitment. You know, we live in an age where we have so many options for happiness. and so many people telling us how to be happy. Yeah. Wear this, drive that, cycle this, do this particular type of exercise or whatever. These things, these things, what you wear, who you know, how you look will make you happy. And it doesn't. You'd be like the rich man in Lazarus. Your life would be divided. It would look great, but, you know, actually spiritually... Covered in sores, spiritually like having the dogs come to lick your wounds, you know, dead, dying, and God doesn't want that for you. Uh, if you want that life of fulfilment, the answer is Jesus. He'll give you that love. He'll reveal to you how much the Father, God the Father loves you, and He'll unlock in you an ability to to love others. So all the other stuff, it's, it's not necessarily that those material things are irrelevant. You know, maybe God will give them to you, maybe he won't. But it's that he'll give you the true treasure. That true treasure of knowing God's love and being able to love like Jesus. Which is the greatest and richest, most wonderful thing. <clears throat> Lastly then, I just love the way that the parable lifts a veil. And that's the phrase that came to mind. There's a lifting of the veil, isn't there? Um, the Bible has a, quite a lot to say about that. This is a biblical idea that heaven and earth are very close together, kind of intermingled, but day by day we don't see that, of course. We just see the world God you know, wants us to interact with day to day. But every now and then, the veil is lifted. I think of Elijah and his servant, and, uh, uh, Elisha and his servant when he prays and to see the, the armies of God and his eyes are opened and he suddenly sees the hosts of the Lord of hosts, <laughs> fighting along, uh, alongside them. I think that's in Two Kings. Um, and there's a lifting of the veil that suddenly shows our world from God's perspective here in this parable. We see particularly how God sees this man. Lazarus, the named one. He has a name. Abraham knows it. Isn't that amazing? You know, if you're a Christian, Abraham will know your name too. <laughs> Sooner or later. Because we'll have eternity to get to know each other. Abraham, I mean, it's an, there's honour here. There's honour. Um, it says the rich man was buried. That was the honourable thing to do. The poor man, it's implied, there's no burial for him. But what does Jesus say? The angels carry him away. This implication that he's, you know, in the company of... Enoch, or someone, you know, he walked with God and was not. You know, it's, it's honouring of this man. He's named, he's honoured, he's known by Abraham. He's given rest, he's given a place of honour. He's in Abraham's bosom, he's in this place of heaven, this place of comfort. In the world's eyes, he couldn't be more despicable, more weak, more pathetic, more 
reviled. And yet in God's eyes, he's so precious. I think of that. There's a comfort there. This isn't quite the point I want to make, but there is a comfort for us when it comes to death that the Lord is close, isn't there? Some of you will have experienced that in the death of those you've loved, who've known the Lord, and even in quite difficult and, you know, naturally speaking, horrible circumstances, you'll have known a peace and a sense of God's presence, that sense of angels carrying away. That's comforting, isn't it? Comforting for those we love and comforting for ourselves. The veil is lifted for a moment on that. But the veil is lifted on this uh, poor man. And what do we see? We see a man made in God's image. We someone created to know and to reflect the perfect glory of God. All the smudges and smears of this world and our fallenness wiped away. You know, even in Abraham's reply to uh, the rich, the unnamed rich man, son, and that's not what I expected, I don't think. I've read the parable lots of times, but you know, here's Abraham talking to a man in hell, calls him child, calls him son. There's tenderness, isn't there? Is that too much to read that in there? There's tenderness and respect for someone made in the image of God, even though they've utterly rejected God's grace and are unable to respond to it anymore. So here's a simple uh, final point. I think we should ask God to lift the veil in how we see other people. That's it. <laughs> lift the veil on how we see other people. So that we can see them as God sees them. We can love people as God loves them. You know, the, the problems of poverty are so complex. It's, n- it's not the fact that we don't see people who are trapped in poverty as made in God's image. That's not the only reason they're in poverty. If this rich man could have seen Lazarus with the veil lifted, if he could have seen her, it, it wouldn't have necessarily been easy or straightforward for him to figure out how best to bless this crippled man covered in sores. They didn't have the medicine, you know. It, maybe... That, you know, the relational problems would have been so great they would never have been overcome, but it would have changed him, wouldn't it? It would have changed what he did. He wouldn't have ignored him. And often we confuse the two things. We think because it's hard, therefore it's not, nece- it's not necessary for us to see things differently. Because it's hard to see people, to act on the idea that everybody is made in God's image. We therefore think it's irrelevant. But it makes all the difference in the world. You know, what a curse we are under that we don't see the, way, the world the way God sees it. That we don't see people the way God sees them. We're blind. We're blind to it. But God promises to open our eyes in Christ. He promises to open our eyes in Christ. And there's a relationship. The Bible says we love because God loved us first. But then he also makes it very clear that he wants us to act, step out in faith. And this amazing thing's ha- thing happens. As we obey God and we love people as he loved them, he opens our eyes a bit more and we see them more as God sees them. And as we see people more as God sees them, we want to love them more. And as we love them more, we see them more as God sees them. And so we want to love them more. 
until we see them as really what the, the image of, of God is in people. And I just want to leave for you with this challenge, really, that again and again and again, you need to ask God to open your eyes, to lift the veil. In prayer, when you speak to the Lord in the morning or whatever time of day it is you spend with him, ask him. Make it your daily prayer. Lord, help me to see other people as you see them. It doesn't solve all the problems. It doesn't mean that you'll just be nice to everyone. It doesn't mean that it's the right thing to just say nice things to people. Love doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean just, oh, I feel nice about you. It means you see the value of a person. And it's the value that will enable you to do the right thing, the good thing, the hard thing. But it's, it's that that will enable you to act uh, righteously. So in prayer, in when you're worshipping, when you come to communion, again and again and again, let your simple prayer be, Lord, open my eyes. Lord, open my eyes. And the more we walk in faith, the more we'll see God's face. Let's pray.